The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that at Dunkirk. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Nicole Corrado. Nicole is an associate professor at the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra in Australia. Her academic work focuses on deliberative democracy as well as on populism in the Philippines. She is also a much sought after commentator on politics in the Philippines. Last year, she published a book, Democracy in the Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedies to Deliberative Action, with Oxford University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Hi there. Before we turn our conversation to Rodrigo Duterte and populism in the Philippines, my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? The Chicago Bulls. So I was born and raised in Manila, and the, the Philippines is a basketball country. So I grew up trying to fit in with the cool kids and pretended I know why Michael Jordan is amazing. And second, what is your favorite political song? Okay, uh, I have a short list, but I've decided it's Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House, though the version I like is the one by Miley Cyrus and Ariana Grande, so please don't judge me. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know I like pop music. I chose this song because there were um, unconfirmed, I must emphasize that, unconfirmed reports that the song was inspired by the Berlin Wall. So they come to build a wall between us, we know they won't win. So I guess this reflects my current mood about how the pandemic has created fortresses and how uh, families are separated by our tribalist responses to COVID. So I'll pick um, Don't Dream It's Over. And finally, what is your favorite political book? So right now it's Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. So the book for me is a good reminder that not everything will be fine, but we need to specify possibilities that move us to action. And I think Rebecca Solnit is also a good writing inspiration, especially for academics who love obscure words. I find her latest book, Reflections of My Non-Existence, is also uh, quite inspirational, and I highly recommend it. Okay, let's move to politics in the Philippines now. Who is Rodrigo Duterte and how did he become president of the Philippines? President Rodrigo Duterte was elected by a landslide in 2016. So he is part of this narrative that 2016 is the year of voting dangerously. Obviously, what makes him a fascinating character for the global community is what he says and what he does, right? He literally called for the genocide of drug addicts. He called Barack Obama son of a whore. He said he should have raped a dead Australian missionary first. And recently, he said he'd like to slap the virus. So this is a very colorful character, to say the least. But the trouble with Duterte is that it's not only about what he says, it's also what he does. So before he ran for president, uh, he was a mayor of a town called Davao City. Before he ran for president, he was a relatively obscure character in Philippines politics. He had the reputation of being the Duterte Harry because of his method of governance, which is basically to order the assassination of troublemakers, whether we are talking about a teenager who's a pickpocket or drug dealers. So these assassinations are carried out by a vigilante group called the Davao Death Squads. And I've heard these stories before he ran for president, but when I heard them, I was just, all right, yeah, that's weird, but never really paid attention. So it's like the stuff of urban legends. But when he ran for president, 
The promise was to replicate what he did in Davao City to the entire country. And he did. So the Philippines now, I think, has this tragedy of having a president fulfilling his campaign promise of I will kill all addicts. Human Rights Watch says more than 5,000 people have died because of his drug war. But I think this number is definitely more than that. So if I may share, just the other day, my colleague and I were conducting phone interviews with the widows of men who were shot dead because of the drug war. And one of them confessed that someone from the morgue offered to fudge the data and told them to just declare, I think it was stroke or heart attack, as the cause of death and not the gunshot, because they will not get state support for the burial if the cause of death is a gunshot from a police operation. So you can see how the numbers are also inaccurate. So this is really just my way of saying there are uncounted casualties of this war, that this is a corrupt war, that this is a war against the poor. But just to complete the story uh, of why he became president, obviously there are many factors and interpretations, but the one that stood out from my own field research is that this is a man who gave voice to people's latent anxieties. Latent anxieties meaning, let's think of an example, actually this is a person I met who voted for Duterte. Imagine a young woman worried about crackheads in the street corner who catcalls her late at night on her way home uh, from her shift in a call center. Or whether it's a mother who gets annoyed with liberal policies of politicians who legislated lowering the age of criminal liability from 15 to 9 years old. So I thought a mother wouldn't like that, you know, 15 years old is even young for the age of criminal liability. But from our study, uh, we realized that actually a lot of mothers that we talk to from poor communities prefer to lower the age to nine years old because their younger kids are being recruited by gangs and gangs know they can't be imprisoned. I think this is the power of fieldwork, right? My liberal bias was challenged by these stories. We assume we know the interests of the poor, which are actually not our interests. Uh, we just didn't know that these were their interests because they were unspeakable. What woman would say, I hope the crackheads in the street corner get shot by motorcycle riding gunmen? What mother would say, I hope my nine-year-old kid can be sent to jail or be threatened to be sent to jail? So these are the kinds of anxieties that Duterte rendered visible. They were unspeakable then, but they are speakable now. Right. And that sounds a lot like stories that you hear about other politicians like Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro or, of course, U.S. President Donald Trump. Duterte is often lumped together with them, but these are not just populists, they're also far right. Is Duterte both populist and far right? Philippine politics has no language of left-right ideology. We don't really ask which political party is in power. We ask which family is in power. And I'm not being rhetorical when I say that. Uh, the canons of Philippine studies do describe the country as cacique democracy. It has feudal characteristics. If you ask me, is Duterte far right? Well, we can't really box him. That's the trouble. That's why there's not enough literature that categorizes him as a man from the far right. So he's not, for example, ultra-nationalist, given that he gave so many concessions to China in disputed territories. He's not ultra-conservative either. Actually, he has a good track record of collaborating with feminist movements when he was mayor of Davao to institutionalize progressive pro-women policies despite his rhetoric. So I would really hesitate to categorize him as far-right. So I wonder if I could be excused and just say I prefer to call him a morally reprehensible actor. I think that's more conceptually precise. I will take that. How has he responded to COVID-19? In the same way that he responds to all issues of national politics, which is to securitize it. 
I think a good parallelism is the drug war. The issue of drug addiction obviously is a medical issue, and this is how a lot of countries, even Latin American countries that have had their own drug war, understand that this is a medical issue. But Duterte's response to the drug war has been to use the police as the main instruments to control this health crisis. And his response to the pandemic is exactly the same. Instead of giving so much support to health services, the first reaction was to deploy police officers in full battle gear to the streets of Manila and disperse protesters that complain about the lack of government support. His response to the pandemic is consistent with how he responded to other crises the country has faced, which is to securitize it. So that sounds a bit more like Modi, Prime Minister of India, who also took the COVID threat serious, but then securitized it and used it to disable protest against him. Whereas people like Bolsonaro and Trump, oddly enough, have not really responded very authoritarian because they said that it wasn't a real threat. Right, yes. Uh, to be fair, Duterte, he did the advice of um, his health officials. It's really just a matter of prioritizing who's calling the shots. So in his case, his interagency task force in charge of the pandemic are composed of military generals. So it's really revealing of the logic behind his governance. And just pushing this a little bit further, Duterte, of course, is also a classic example of a strong man who tries to portray his masculinity. Is he wearing a mask? Yes, he's wearing a mask, to be fair. In a recent article about Duterte, you spoke about penal populism. What is that and how does it relate to Duterte? This term is borrowed from um, sociologist John Pratt and, to be fair, brought to my attention by um, a colleague, um, Gene Gutierrez, who studies the sociology of deviance at the University of the Philippines. And the argument here is that the other that Duterte constructed in his campaign are drug addicts and criminals, and he ran on the tough-on-crime platform. So I guess if we use the logic of populism of the other that the populist creates, in the Philippines it's not the immigrant, um, it's not even necessarily the elites, but it's the dehumanized drug addicts who do not deserve human rights, that they deserve to die. So it's the drug addict rather than the drug dealer? There is a rhetoric against the drug dealer as well. There is a lot of rhetoric about, you know, even a, a visually striking performance of the president showing a, a huge paper with a matrix of all the drug lords from generals to businessmen to some celebrities. But in practice, none of them have really been caught, put to jail or faced the courts. Most of the people who are killed in the drug war are poor people, although there have also been high-level assassinations, for example, town mayors who get shot while they're in jail as part of the drug war. But for the most part, it's been the poor that's been targeted. Wow. So is Duterte an anomaly in Philippine politics, or does he fit in a tradition of populist politics in the country? Yeah, so this is a debate in the scholarly community. So, for example, Walden Bellio calls him a fascist original. And his argument is that if the typical stages of fascism begins with constraining free speech and then the media and then going after opposition figures, and only then will, will mass killings happen. But Walden Bellio argues that Duterte actually did the reverse. He started his rule with a killing spree, and then he jailed his political opponents, and then he started shutting 
shutting down uh, some media organization. So in that way, he's a fascist original. But others say he's, he's very much part of traditions of Philippine politics. So for example, his behavior as Davao mayor and now as president is the behavior of many mayors who act as warlords and sleazy political bosses. What Duterte did was just to scale up these practices nationwide of acting like a thug as if he owns the police. I mean, that's not so different from a lot of city mayors that we know who use the police and the military as their personal armed escorts, right? If we go in a more cultural realm, Ana Cristina Pertiera actually talks about how Duterte's style of politics fits the country's telenovela culture. So in the late 90s, the president elected a populist president, an action star, Joseph Estrada, who also had a macho, tough guy image. So in a way, Duterte fits the televisual demands of today's politics. In fact, he is notorious for holding press conferences. Even now, during the pandemic, where information is so important, he still holds his press conferences at midnight because that is when he is in his element, you know, this folksy town mayor in a karaoke bar talking to his constituents. Filipinos now call this the late, late show with Roddy Duterte. So, you know, it's very much fitting of pop culture. And how does he fit in with politicians in the region? Are there other politicians like him in neighboring countries? Do they have close ties to politicians in other countries? His supporters create this illusion that he's comparable to, let's say, Lee Kuan Yew or even Mahathir. But for me, I just want to say, oh, you wish. This presupposes some level of competence and even a professionalized civil service. But I think what Duterte uh, reinvigorates is the Asian values debate about uh, sacrificing civil liberties for collective prosperity. This is very much reminiscent of the debates, I think, in early 2000s, right? This is the culture of Asian leaders who prioritize collective prosperity. Obviously, I don't like this argument. It's too essentialist for my taste. But this is how his rule is justified, linking his style to the style of great leaders um, in the region. Duterte mainly features in the international media because of statements and actions that you have mentioned before, and it's kind of a vulgar authoritarian. But he's very popular within the Philippines, and he also has famous supporters in music and sports, like the boxer Manny Pacayo. Tell us about him. Manny Pacquiao is the world's greatest boxer, some people would say. Um, he's the leading pound-for-pound boxer in the world. One of the most memorable matches was when he, I think, knocked out Oscar De La Hoya, uh, though he's never beaten Floyd Mayweather. He's an important figure in the Philippines, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I've experienced this myself. Every time he has a fight, there is a temporary ceasefire between the military and rebel groups because they want to watch the fight. Crime rate drops, I kid you not, and Metro Manila, which is notorious for its traffic jams, is just empty. The streets are just empty every time there's a a Pacquiao fight. So he's sort of a national hero in that sense. But what's fascinating about Manny is how he thinks of himself as a Renaissance man. So aside from boxing, he thinks, emphasis on thinks, he thinks he's a singer. So after his boxing tournaments, he'd actually have a concert and invites all of these, well, important balladeers um, in the U.S. His boxing rink entrance song is actually a song he sang and recorded himself. So you know how boxers, when they enter the rink, it's usually Stormzy or Kanye West. Uh, But no, Manny has his own soundtrack that he sang himself. He's also an actor. Uh, He has a sitcom in the Philippines. He's a philanthropist. But above all, he is a senator of the Republic of the Philippines. And he is a Duterte ally. He was actually playing along in the Senate when Duterte allies persecuted one of Duterte's political opponents 
and she's now in jail. So yeah, Pacquiao is an interesting man. There are talks of him running for president. So let's see. Are there any other famous athletes, for example, have campaigned for Duterte or have entered politics? Nothing of the caliber of Manny Pacquiao, although I think one of the most peculiar things about Philippine politics, I mentioned earlier, it's run by family dynasties. And the only politicians that are actually able to enter national politics, if they're not from political families, are either actors or athletes. So, for example, in the 90s, there was a basketball player who ran for Senate, and that was the first political position he ran for. Um, I'm not sure if these former politicians who are athletes are Duterte allies now. Yeah, but in terms of athletes, I think Pacquiao is, I think, the most relevant internationally or even nationally. That's very vocally supporting the president. And he clearly sounds in a league of his own. Absolutely. You have mentioned several times that Philippine politics is about families. In what family does Duterte fall? Or is he an independent? In the populist literature, populism literature, right, we tend to say they're political outsiders. But Duterte isn't really a political outsider. If we look at his biography, his parents actually are government officials in Davao. So when he ran for mayor, he already had the political capital of his father. And he also built his own political dynasty now. So the mayor of Davao now that replaced him is his daughter, Sara Duterte, who's also very much like him. I mean, I first learned about Sara Duterte when she was in the news because she punched a sheriff because he defied orders of a demolition. Her brother is also in politics, so the vice mayor of, of Sara is her brother. And then there's a brother who's also in Congress. So in a way, Duterte is perpetuating the, the typical political dynasty style in the Philippines. So Sara Duterte is also being um, groomed to be the next president as well. So let's see if she runs in two years. And another similarity there with Bolsonaro and with Trump, although the Trump children don't run for office because that's beneath them. You also told me about his support among some pop stars. And there is even a so-called Duterte dance. What is that all about? Yes, so you're referring to the Mocha girls here. So Mocha Uson um, with her girl group are Duterte supporters. So this girl group is known for their uh, risque dance moves, um, which they perform professionally. Like they are legitimate performers in bars and hotels, um, but also staple performers in Duterte campaign rallies, even today. So the Duterte dance you mentioned is something that I cannot do, which puts me to shame as a Filipino. <laughs> but the moves incorporate the Duterte the song is lively, and the message is, are you ready for change? So that was kind of part of the chorus. And for me, what's intriguing is when the mocha girls perform this dance, they usually wear uh, fatigues when they perform this, as if they're part of a Duterte army or as if they're at war. So Mocha now has a government position. She's labeled as the queen of fake news. She tried to run for office in the midterm elections last year, but she lost. And there are many more examples of pop stars supporting the president. But now it gets tricky because at the height of the pandemic, ABS-CBN, which is the largest broadcasting network in the country, was shut down by Duterte allies in Congress and in the executive branch as well. So this means that news and current affairs programs are shut, but this also means celebrities who appear in uh, telenovelas and noontime shows are out of a job. So now all of these celebrities are speaking up against um, this injustice. So let's see how far Duterte's celebrity power goes, because I think in terms of celebrity endorsement, the country is definitely at the crossroads.
And is there an anti-Duterte movement or are it just the same old families? And if there is that movement, is that pure elite phenomenon in the parliament or the Senate? Or are there big demonstrations against Duterte? In the last midterm election, so this was just last year, it was the first time in many, many decades that no member of the opposition won a seat in the Philippine Senate. So you can say that the political opposition in the formal political sphere has been wiped out. But they're still active. This is represented by the Liberal Party, which is the party of the former president that Duterte replaced. There's kind of um, a rejection of that kind of discourse that we are the decent politicians and Duterte supporters are immoral and counter-democratic, there has been a rejection of that. But what I find fascinating now in terms of opposition against Duterte are the more creative, although fragmented, kinds of campaigns that kind of try to speak up against particular issues that they don't like. So it's not really that it's a huge anti-Duterte campaign. It's a reaction against particular policies that Duterte endorses. So for example, it sounds mundane, but I think this example is really important. When ABS-CBN was shut down, The fans of these young TV stars came together and blocked all the trolls, the Duterte's troll army that tries to justify the shutdown of the network. And they had a a trending Twitter hashtag, uh, which trended worldwide, which says, we block as one, meaning they block trolls as one. In response to the government's COVID-19 policy, we heal as one. So I think that's quite fascinating because I wouldn't call these fans as anti-Duterte, but when moments of political crisis like shutting down a major television channel takes place, they're willing to lend their voices. So I would expect that the kind of opposition that would emerge at the Duterte regime may not necessarily be this huge, sustained anti-Duterte movement, but pockets of opposition that express dissent against particular policies. So the Philippines also had this socially distanced protest at the height of the pandemic, resisting an anti-terror bill, which basically legalizes arresting people without warrant. I mean, that's a really big deal. But the protests also happened. These are by students, by artists. But these are protests driven by organizations that have a tradition of resisting power even before Duterte was president. So my final question is, what do you believe is the main misperception about Duterte and populism in the Philippines? I think it's that the impression that the Philippines is an exotic country, and I have to acknowledge that I have immensely benefited from the interest that international media and even academic publishers now have to the Philippines because of Duterte, right? Because obviously, it's a very, very strange and colorful man. But yeah, he's odd, and yeah, he's morally reprehensible. But to understand why he's still in power, why people tolerate the killings and the dehumanization of the poor is really the same reason and why injustice persists around the world. That is because looking the other way is still the most viable option for organizing societies. I mean, we do this all the time with melting polar ice caps or extreme hunger, right? Denialism is not unique to the Philippines. It's not an exotic country. So I think this is my attempt to smuggle in a tiny rant about a question that I often get, which is why is he still in power? Well, there are a lot of reprehensible leaders who are still in power. The Philippines is not an exotic country. Get an amen for that from me, from the U.S., of course. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Nicole. (laughs) Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you want to know more about Nicole Corrado, you should follow her on Twitter at at Nicole Corrado. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time.
The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I see him down the bunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's capital turned out a little weird.